This episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is brought to you by Screencastify, a tool made by teachers for teachers that makes it easy to record, edit, and share videos of your computer screen. Educators created over 100 million videos with Screencastify in 2020 alone, and it's likely that some of those videos were created in your district. Contact Screencastify for more information on why they're the premier video solution for educators and to get a custom usage data report on your district's teachers who are already creating with Screencastify. Head to screencastify.com slash getting smart or click the link in the show notes or the blog for this episode. All right, let's get to the show. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderick. I'm joined this week by John Watson, the founder of Evergreen Education Group. John, as you may know, is uh, the leading expert on online learning. He recently hosted the Digital Learning Annual Conference. Uh, John, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Tom. How was your conference? It was fantastic. It was. Was it me, in person? I, we, we had 500 people on site in Austin. We had 700 online for the folks who were on site in Austin. I think for most of them, it was the first gathering anywhere close to that size since pre-pandemic. And so it was just a fantastic vibe. And I think a lot of, th- of that came through with the online portion as well. We were live streaming some sessions out of Austin and uh, it, it, it just felt great. Who, who comes to the conference? We are focused as, as in all of our work on the broad range of K-12 digital learning. Most of our attendees are school and district leaders, state agency folks, nonprofit organizations, companies, the uh, researchers as well, I should mention, the, the full range uh, within K-12 education. We have some private schools, uh, we uh, public, charter, private, uh, a- as well as online, blended, hybrid, mainstream, the, the, the full gamut of different school and district types. It's interesting, John. Do you feel like, in some respects, the world came to you in the last two years? So you, online was a, l- a little bit, of, uh, sort of, around the edges of traditional education, and suddenly everybody in the world is learning online. Uh, we've said that many times in the last fifteen months. We were niche for a very long time, and then all of a sudden, we weren't. So I, I'd love to just hear you talk about the status of online learning in America, maybe we could start um, just pre-pandemic, like how, how many learners in K-12 were learning primarily online in America? Do you have a sense of that? It depends on how you define online. We do a number of counts uh, around these issues. There are probably around 400 to 500,000 students attending full-time online schools pre-pandemic. Uh, we count those primarily uh, around the charter schools because there are some district schools that are a bit harder to to count. And, and those are the, the schools in which students never attended a physical school. On top of that, there were millions of students who were taking one or two online courses while enrolled in a mainstream school. And then on top of that, there were untold millions of students probably getting close to all students who are using some form of digital tools and resources. So as you know, from your long history, right. in this space, that's, that's been the evolution. If you go back 
20 years or so, there were small numbers of students in the online courses and in online schools. Those numbers have increased steadily, perhaps somewhat slowly, but steadily. The real growth has been within the mainstream districts with those tools and resources, as opposed to the online schools and fully online courses. What what do you think the full-time online enrollment K-12 will be in the fall? And will will that be 50 or 100,000 up from pre-pandemic? Almost certainly, yes. We are, we are right now gathering the data for what were the numbers during the pandemic. And the online schools saw very, very significant increases. Any, of course, some were, some were flat, but some online schools and providers uh, saw increases of 30, 50% or more, in some cases, as much as doubling. Now, of course, some of those students and families are going to be going back to their mainstream schools full time. But we've heard from a lot of folks, students and parents, saying they didn't know about that option pre-pandemic. Now they do, and they want to stick with it. John, I'm, I'm thinking the last time we saw each other, we went for a bike ride a couple of years ago. And uh, and since then, um, video became a thing. Um, was, was that a big and important addition to online education over the last two years? I think it's a very significant change. And, and I think some framing of this is valuable. When you look at the distinction between what we've been calling emergency remote learning, right? That's what districts who were on site had to do once the pandemic hit. They had to shift to emergency remote learning over a weekend or a week. And that, of course, was very different than what you and I knew of pre-pandemic online learning, which tended to be uh, asynchronous primarily with some limited use of video. Now, it's pretty clear that putting a student in front of a camera or listening to a live video lecture for, let's say, six hours a day is clearly suboptimal. That's not a great approach. A lot of mainstream districts learn that over time, right? So we saw changes happening during the the pandemic. The interesting thing as well is those online schools that had a long history that was a bit more asynchronous started incorporating more synchronous video into their courses and into the communication between their teachers and students. And I think that's a very positive thing. One of the interesting things that we saw was the more experienced online schools and course providers were using video in different ways, a little bit less for direct instruction and a little bit more to connect with students, thinking about that social and emotional connection that happens between a teacher and students, as well as between students, that's clearly facilitated by real-time video. And that's the kind of usage of video that we saw by the experienced online schools during the course of the pandemic. There's been um, a generally negative um, supposition about online learning, and, and some of that um, was expanded uh, during the, the pandemic. But I want to note the really bad extremes of online learning that we saw ranging from all um, lousy asynchronous content uh, done remotely or 
as, as you described, all video, trying to replicate a regular school day, but just videoing into a, a classroom. And, and both of those extremes of all uh, bad async content and uh, trying to replicate school as a Zoom classroom, um, both are things that we wouldn't consider to be high quality online learning, right? Absolutely correct. Even pre-pandemic, we often said, look, online isn't a magic bullet. It's not like you can say, hey, we're online, and you've magically got a great product, a great course, a great school, a great outcome. Instead, it needs to be well-planned, well-thought-out, well-implemented, assessed, evaluated, adjusted, et cetera. We knew that. And in fact, when we've seen new online schools or new online or hybrid, we should talk about that as well. There's some distinctions between hybrid and online. But when we've looked at the development of new online and hybrid schools over the years, experienced educators will often say, look, it took two or three years for me to get really comfortable in this new environment. And so we know that there's good practice and there's bad practice. We know that it takes a while for educators to get comfortable in that new environment. And when you go back and you think about, look, there's good practice and bad practice, it's a lot like a brick and mortar school, right? Putting a school building out doesn't mean that there's going to be good instruction and good learning in it. And that's the exact same situation within the online environment. John, maybe for our listeners, you could, uh, who, who might not be familiar with uh, online learning, what would you, how, how would you describe sort of best practice today? And maybe you could give us a picture of what, what, what might a upper elementary learning experience look like, and then give us a picture of what a what a rich high school uh, day might be, but from sort of what you'd consider best practice, how would you describe the learner experience today in a, a full-time online school? First, I'll say there's a lot of different practices that vary by grade level. And so that's, uh, that's important to understand. Right. Second thing that's really critical to understand is that good online schools are building really strong relationships between adults and online students. Now, oftentimes that's between a teacher and the students or multiple teachers and, and students. It also often is a counselor, a mentor, a student champion, somebody like that. These students talk about that a lot, the connection that they have with a caring adult, whether that's a teacher or somebody in another role. At the high school level, what we'll see is that students will tend to have more flexibility. They're in a bit more control. There's more student agency about what are they, what courses are they choosing to take? How are they spending their time? They may be in a bit more of a situation where once they are taking control of their education, they're reaching out to their teacher a bit more than the teacher having to consistently reach out to the student. The student is working a uh, a bit more self-paced at a, a bit more of a flexible schedule. A lot of these students will talk about how that flexibility allows them to pursue another interest, whether it's a career related, a job, an internship, a sport, theater, dance, etc. We hear these stories from students. We also hear from students who may have had uh, health issues, mental health or physical health issues, for whom the, the flexibility is so critically valuable. You know, pre-pandemic, I think there was this sense, as, as you mentioned earlier, that this was, okay, this was a small number of students, but 
if you're familiar with the the some of the concepts of the end of average, for instance, in fact, when you think about students who have individual interests, students who have different pursuits, students who may have different personal issues that they have to address, that's a lot of students, right? And, and so the idea that this should just right. be a niche, I, I, I think that that may uh, be relegated to a pre-pandemic view, and I think that would be a great thing. Now, when you think at the other extreme of uh, student ages, what does this mean for, let's say, a second grader? Well, if you're talking about a second grader in a, a fully online school, you're talking about a student who will probably be using some video to connect with teachers, as well as having a learning coach, maybe a parent, maybe a relative, maybe some other caring adult who's in the home with that student who is playing a very valuable support and instructional role. The other element with those youngest students is the online school is probably sending that student and the caregiver a set of non-digital materials, physical books, books to read, workbooks, manipulatives, science labs, you know, things like that, as well as the teachers are more likely to say, like, you know, let's say it's a, a science class of, of some sort, or they're thinking about science. They may, they may say, go outside and see what you see and come back and tell us about it. You know, if you're, if you're talking about clouds or rain, weather, et cetera, they're incorporating a, a lot of offline experiences into the online school environment. It's so critical to think this way because I don't know of any good online schools that have kids in front of computers for six hours a day. John, are you seeing more uh, project-based learning being incorporated into models? And, and if not, uh, why not? Yes, there is more. I don't know that it is accelerating as much as uh, project-based learning proponents might like to see. It feels to me like in pre-pandemic, there were two areas that a lot of educators were talking about. Project-based learning was one, and this is unrelated, but it was just another area that it seemed to be coming up a lot, was SEL, social-emotional learning. Well, during the pandemic, SEL became front and center for every student in the country, as well as just about every teacher and probably most adults as well, right? And, and so, again, even though there's not necessarily a reason to think those are substitutes for each other in any way. It does feel like a lot of schools, districts, and individual teachers, as they were thinking about, okay, where do we need to focus, perhaps complementing or in addition to the academic content, sometimes really going front and center. And that was really social emotional learning in the last 15 months during the pandemic in particular. I think it's going to be a good thing if our system continues to focus on the social emotional needs of students and teachers, I think we're going to see more use of project-based learning in different situations as well. John, we, we saw innovation uh, frequently called pods, but uh, nano schools, these very, very small uh, groups of students often forming around a, an online resource or an online school. Uh, was there a lot of conversation about pods at the conference? And is this a, a structure we're likely to see more of going forward? I think the jury's still out. There's no question that 
pods were able to support students and families during the pandemic. When we think about what's going to come out of the pandemic in education and continue going forward, I think there's reasons to think pods might continue, and there's actually really good reasons to think pods might not continue as well. I do think there are equity issues around pods. I think it's far easier to envision a pod when you're talking about uh, upper income parents, for instance, versus who have more flexibility around their work. Perhaps there's a non-working parent who's able to support a pod compared to uh, the wider range of, of families and whether they're able to support their kids in that way. Right. It raises the question of, will either schools themselves or NGOs, social organizations, churches, et cetera, might they be able to provide pods in some form or fashion also? I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think the different ways that different community groups, whether existing formal community groups or informal groups of families can support students in their education in different ways, I think those are great conversations to be having going forward, but I think it's way too early to know what pods are going to look like. Our friend uh, Kelly Smith, who started Prenda uh, in Arizona, saw extraordinary growth. Uh, I think he's over 400 of these nano schools or, or pods um, on the on the Prenda platform. Um, I, I like Prenda because I, I appreciate the way Kelly sort of reimagined the learning day between these skill sprints and projects and collaborative uh, activities. But do you think we'll see models like Prenda expanding across the country? I think that's the key question, actually. Are we going to see replicable models like that, that the people who are interested in pods can tap into? Because what we were seeing in the early days of the pandemic with these pods sprouting up in different places was essentially so many of these groups had to figure it out for themselves, right? They were all one-offs every time. And, and that's a pretty big challenge. So I think the question going forward is, will organizations like Prenda and others be able to provide a replicable, low enough cost, high enough quality approach to the pods? And then I think the other related issue is, What's the exact relationship between, let's call it the pod provider or pod supporter with the school as well? And as you know, there you think about all these different flavors of school, whether it's a mainstream school, mainstream district, charter school, private school, independent study. And I think you're going to see different elements of what you might call the mainstream system either more adaptable towards supporting pods or less adaptable to supporting pods. I also think we're going to see differences by state. We've already seen that, and we're seeing it right now. Unfortunately, we're seeing some really bad policies related to online learning coming out of some states. And I think some of that's going to impact how we think about pods as well as how we think about some other innovations as well. We are already seeing some uh, states and some districts uh, closing down or restricting um, online and virtual learning. Um, can I assume you think that's a really bad idea? <laughs> it's it's a terrible idea, and I feel like it it is based on this really really fundamental misconception, and, and that misconception is the 
conflating of emergency remote learning, as I mentioned earlier, with online learning. It's also conflating the idea that during the pandemic, in a lot of situations, 100% of students had to shift to emergency remote learning. But as you know, online learning was never meant for everybody. You and I, for a long time, have been advocates around online learning as much as anybody else. But I have never said, I don't think you've ever said that it should be for every student, right? And, and so when you look at places like New York and New Jersey, and there's other states as well that have said, every kid needs to be back in a physical school. I just want to look at those folks and say, have you talked to some of the students who had a great experience being online? Have you talked with some of the parents who have said, this was the best thing that's happened to my child? You know, why would you take that away? It's, it doesn't make sense to me at all. It seems like a horrible idea and, and one that ignores uh, many of the lessons um, of the pandemic. Uh, I, like you, would love to see every family and every learner have access to high-quality online learning as a choice and uh, would love to see every secondary student have access to course choice where they, uh, on a course-by-course -course basis, have a, have a high-quality online option. So um, heartbreaking to see cities like New York um, uh, squelch that option for families uh, and, and hope we see some reversal of that happening with, uh, with family pushback. I fully support the idea that every student in this country should have the opportunity to go back to a full-time on-site school in the fall. There's no question about that. But of course, that would change if there's a, a, a new surge of, of the pandemic, but I don't think that's going to happen. So let's leave that aside. Every student should have a full-time on-site option. But to me, there's no question that every student should have online and hybrid and blended options as well. And saying that every student should have an on-site option does not equate to you take away the online option. Those are two different things. It should be about options for all students and all families. John, we've talked about some... Uh, negative examples of districts and states um, doing some really dumb things to restrict online and virtual learning. But do, do you see some states taking positive steps to take some of the lessons from pandemic education forward and increase access to quality online learning? At the state level, unfortunately, right now, it's mostly a defensive action to make sure that they don't pass poor laws and, and uh, implement poor new policies. At the same time, though, what we're seeing that gives me a lot of optimism is the number of districts that are creating online and hybrid schools and programs for the first time. And so the reason to be optimistic is that we've got all these students who have now had a remote learning experience. Some weren't great, but a lot were really good. And now we see districts responding to that. And I'm optimistic that this groundswell of it's probably like 10 times as many students and families who have had a really good experience with online learning than had ever experienced online learning pre-pandemic. Eventually, I hope that's going to make its way up through the system and result in better access, more options, and other really positive policies. 
John, as you look forward to uh, the, the future, what, what are you excited about when you think about full and part-time online learning? What are the developments that uh, you're jazzed about? It's really a summary of some of the things that we're talking about in the sense that, as you said at the very start of this conversation, online has been a niche for approaching 25 years now, right? We know now that the examples exist. Examples of really good online learning exist. Over the last five or seven years or so, we've seen the emergence of a lot of hybrid schools that were doing a really good job of combining online and on-site. And we're seeing them in interesting places. Massachusetts, for instance, isn't known as a hotbed of online learning activity, but I've shared a platform with two founders of a school called the Map Academy in Massachusetts who had created a, a hybrid school. We're going to see a lot more of that going forward. And it's exciting. We saw this in Austin and at DVAC Online. This mix of the really experienced folks, like you and the folks that you work with, and all these people who are new. And, and one of the things that's so exciting is the number of people who join us in any sense, look around and say, I didn't know this was going on. I didn't know that this was all out here. Somebody in response to our conference wrote, he said, coming to DLAC, I thought I was diving into an Olympic-sized swimming pool and I was going to see all this amazing stuff. After being there for three days, I realized it's actually like the Pacific Ocean. There is just endless opportunity and there's so much to learn. And we're seeing those positive impacts and those positive developments for teachers and families and students. And that to me is what's exciting. Online has been a niche. It's, a, it's growing now. There's more and more opportunity. In the past, there's, there's rarely been a combination of large scale and positive impact, right? And there are exceptions. There are some very, very good schools and programs that have achieved both, but they've tended to be outliers. And so when you look at some of the most prominent examples, they often tend to be pretty small. And so I think what we're seeing now is this next stage of evolution around digital, where you see that combination of positive impact on student opportunities and outcomes and scale. So it's reaching a large number of students. In the past, there's been a few of those. In the future, I think we're going to see a lot of those. Uh, John, I'm, I want to riff on a couple of the things that you said. I, we've had the good fortune to work uh, coast to coast with different communities launching new micro schools that really take the best of, um, of, of, of on-site resources, taking advantage of community assets um, and incorporating blended and online learning in a very small setting, it might be um, 30, 40, 50 students, um, but really strong relationships and access to a world of opportunity. And so it's been really exciting to see people inspired by a new sense of what's possible, uh, creating these new uh, school formats. And we're excited about some elementary schools, as well as uh, a lot of new high schools uh, being formed and it sounds like uh, there was some enthusiasm for that at, uh, at the conference. Undoubtedly. The ways that technology can be used 
creatively, I think are becoming more and more clear. You've been thinking uh, about these issues for a long time and, and very thoughtfully around issues like the idea that technology moves much more quickly than human systems, right? You've talked about this. And I think what we're seeing now is the human systems catching up to the technology. I get asked all the time, what's the next interesting technology? My answer is, I'm not interested in the next quote unquote interesting technology. I'm interested in the next district, school, state, or other organization that catches up to being able to use existing technologies in a much broader and impactful way. Uh, we've been talking to John Watson, uh, Evergreen Education Group. Uh, John's the world's leading expert on online learning. Uh, John, it's been great to catch up. Congratulations on a, on a great conference. I'm sure it was great to be in person with a lot of folks that you have been online with for two years. It was great to have them in person. It was great to have the online folks as well and be able to share what we were doing in Austin. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Tom. We, uh, we appreciate your insights on what we think is going to continue to be an accelerating trend that's online learning. Thanks for listening. Keep learning and keep innovating. Another thanks to our podcast sponsor, Screencastify. To learn more about the power of video to engage learners, check out screencastify.com slash getting smart. There's a link in the show notes as well. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.